Amen. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. So we're going to be in Luke 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to find one behind a seat uh, near you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that with you. That would be our gift to you. We would love for you to walk out of here today with a copy of God's Word. Well, today we find ourselves here at the beginning of a new year. And uh, so it kind of puts us in the mindset of wondering, like, what is this new year going to have in store for us? And based on the last couple of years we've had, who knows, right? It's, um, there's really no shortage of opinions about how we can prepare well for 2022. And um, whether it's uh, personal development or financial or health, we're basically just a Google search away from an avalanche of advice. We loved to set plans in place. We love to set goals. We love to set resolutions and have aspirations for the new year. And my temptation has been to come in today and to preach this first message of the year as just this fire us up kind of message for 2022. To, to, to get us ready to say, this is the year we're gonna achieve all those goals that we've set for ourselves and we've set for our church. But the reality is today's teaching is going to be about as far from a motivational speech as you can imagine. Instead, today's teaching is going to ground us, and it's going to prepare us for the type of posture that we need to have before God as we enter into the new year. And so before we get to the text, I want to set the context of what we're going to be dropping into here, because we're going to be dropping into a teaching of Jesus to his disciples. But before this is happening. If you would back up a couple chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and you don't need to turn there, but if you went back to like Luke 15, you're going to see that Jesus has been teaching a series of parables that have been focused on the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of that time. And Jesus is calling them out for several reasons. He's calling them out because they're lovers of self. They are not seeking to save the lost. They're more interested in themselves. He calls them out because they're lovers of money because there's lovers of prestige and honor. And he's calling them out because the teaching that they're doing is misleading people and even leading people towards sin. And so the disciples who are right there with him and experiencing all of this with him, in the context of that, they have a plea to Jesus. And so Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. And there's an exclamation point there. It's a plea. Jesus, increase our faith. It's almost like it's a cry for help. They're like, teacher, you got to help us. Like, how can we live up to this teaching? How can we avoid going down the same path that the Pharisees have gone down? Well, Jesus knows that he needs to ground them for the ministry that they're going to be called to, to prepare them for what's coming their way, to prepare that they would not head down the same path as the Pharisees. And so we as disciples of Jesus today should we should be crying out the same thing. Our plea as we go into a new year should be Jesus increase our faith. So what is it about our current context our current cultural moment that would lead the Holy Spirit to cause me to go to this particular scripture to teach on today the first Sunday of 2022. Well as I think about this current cultural moment that we are in today there's a lot of ways that we could describe it, but let me offer up this phrase as a way that kind of captures the spirit of our age, and it's this. 
the exaltation of self. The exaltation of self. And the reality is our culture is obsessed with self. Our culture tells us, look inside for true meaning. Be true to yourself. Find your truth. It doesn't matter what truth is. It's how I feel. This is the air that we breathe today. And as such, it's not something that's just out there. It has permeated all areas of our lives, even this church. And, and you may say, you know, I, I know the word really well, and, 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 I, and I see, and I'm able to see the world from a biblical worldview because I can see culture for what it is. And that may be true, but the reality is this is such the water we swim in today that it, it makes its way into our heads and our hearts, and it begins to affect the way that we see ourselves and the way we see others and the way we see God. And so into that, into that moment with his disciples and into this cultural moment that we live in today, Jesus is going to speak some important words to us. And Jesus' teaching is going to run counter to the current cultural moment that we're in. And I'm telling you, we are going to push against it, which is exactly why we need to hear it. Many outside the church, and maybe some of you in here today, will hear this teaching and you're going to conclude that is outdated, that is irrelevant, and it might even be oppressive. And I want to just share, you, as, share with you, as I was preparing for this, like I found myself wanting to kind of take the edges off of this teaching, to like grab some more passages here and there to, com com to, to make a more complete picture, to kind of make it a little more palatable for us. But you know what? Jesus doesn't do that. I don't want to do that either. See, Jesus is loving his disciples here, and he's loving us. And he's got some words for us today. And so we just need to sit in this, and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us get this in our hearts so that we can take the right posture before God as we enter into the new year. So let me pray for us as we get started here. Heavenly Father, we just need your help. Lord, we're so grateful for your word grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for Jesus Christ. Father, today we need you, Lord. Open our hearts up to this teaching. Do the work that only you can do, Father. Get me out of the way, Lord. Let your work do the work, which is to move in our hearts, to prepare us well, to take the right posture before you. Lord, we need you. May this all be for your glory today, Father. Lord, we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to, let's get to the teaching. So we're going to be in Luke 17, and uh, we're going to go to verse 7. Luke 17, verse 7, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And that's where we'll stop. So let's, let's make sure we understand what's happening. So Jesus has just told a very short parable. Those first three verses are a parable to the disciples. And so let's make sure that we understand what's happening in that parable. Verse 7, Jesus looks at him and says, and his disciples says, will any of you who has a servant, in other words, if any of you had a servant, would you, would you say to that servant after they've been out in the fields all day working, when they come in at the end of the day, would you happen to say to them, come on in and recline at table? 
And that phrase is not one that we typically use, come at once and recline at table, but it basically means, hey, come in here, sit down, take your shoes off, I'm going to serve you. Let me take care of you. And he's asking this as a rhetorical question. The disciples are going to know the obvious answer to this is no. That is not going to happen. The disciples would know in the context of this example that it would be un, it would, that would just not be fathomable that the master would be ministering to the servant. So then in verse 8, Jesus says this, will he not rather say to him, so Jesus is saying, this is what's really going to happen, right? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? See, he's, he's saying, now you know that what's really going to happen is the master's going to say, hey, I need you now to prepare a meal for me, and by the way, you need to change your clothes because you stink, and you need to prepare a meal for me, and you need to serve me this meal. And then you can eat and drink. And then finally, Jesus ends the parable with another rhetorical question, which is this. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And again, the obvious answer to the disciples would have been no. Now, we might answer that a little differently. If Jesus were asking that of us today, it would be, I, I think I would at least be like, hey, if they're serving me well, I might be like, sure, yeah, thank you. I'd probably give him a thanks, appreciate all the work. But the disciples know in the context of that culture and the framework of that story, it would not have been, he would not have been offered any special commendation or even a thank you. The answer would have been, no, they're not gonna offer up thanks. The disciples understood well this master-servant relationship that's being described here. So now Jesus is getting ready to take this parable and he's going to apply it. But before we go there, let me just pause here and I want to make six quick observations from this parable. Now, if you're taking notes, you don't need to write these down. I'm going to hit them pretty quickly. The purpose of me doing this is I think these will help create some framework as we then get to the application in just a minute. So six observations from the parable. The first is this: there's a master and a servant. That seems pretty obvious, right? But it's important because there's an authority structure there. There's a clear delineation of roles and responsibilities. The master's in charge, the servant is not. Second observation, the servant has multiple responsibilities. It talks about the servant um, serving in the fields, uh, maybe tending the livestock, preparing a meal, serving a meal. This is likely a small farm setting where the master maybe has only one servant, maybe two servants. That would not have been unusual at that time. Even people of modest means would hire a servant. And so that's probably the setting here is multiple responsibilities. The third observation is that the servant's duties are determined by the master, not by the servant. Now, it seems like an obvious thing, but Jesus makes very clear in verse 8 it's like the master's going to say, I know you've just been working all day, but it's time for you to prepare a meal for me, and it's time for you to serve that meal to me. The servant doesn't define the work that needs to be done. The servant doesn't get to come in at the end of the day and say, it's been a big day, I know I need to make you a meal, but like right now I need a power bar and a five-hour energy. That's not going to happen. Like he has to do what the master is telling him to do and when the master is telling him to do that. Fourth observation, the servant meets the needs of the master before taking care of his own. The servant is going to eat, but only after the master has been taken care of. 
Fifth observation, the work of the servant doesn't merit any special commendation. Verse 9, Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the disciples would have said, of course not. He did what was commanded. Why would he be offered up any kind of special thanks or any kind of special acknowledgement? Now, just a quick, a quick illustration or a quick observation. This is a brief aside. This makes me think of the NFL. Like, so I like football. I love football. My wife and I, we watch a lot of football. But why is it that every time like a defensive player makes a big tackle or an offensive player makes a first down, there's a special celebration or a special dance? Like, you just did what you get paid millions of dollars to do, go back to the huddle. <laughs> what would it be like if Pastor Brock made a big point in a sermon and like, <laughs> like, no, just go back to what you're doing. All right, okay, a side over. Final observation is the master ultimately provides for the servant. The servant's going to eat, the servant serves the master, but ultimately that servant's needs are going to be met by the master, we don't want to miss that. And so, Jesus is now finished the parable and he's going to apply the parable. So let's look at verse 10. Luke 17, verse 10. So you also, again, Jesus is turning the attention to disciples. He's looking at, he's looking at us. He's saying, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. How's that for firing you up for 2022? Like, let's go! <laughs> Not much of a motivational speech. So what is Jesus teaching his disciples and what is he teaching us? And how does this ground us and inform us as we get ready to set our eyes on 2022? Well, let me go straight to the main point of what Jesus has for us today. The main point of his teaching, this is the sermon in a sentence right here. The position of disciple requires the posture of a servant. The position of disciple requires the posture of a servant. And just a couple of truths related to this. And the first is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is our master. Which means God is in charge and we are not and he doesn't owe us anything. Secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are God's servants. If you're a follower of Christ, God owns you. And that can sound like a very harsh statement, but that is a wonderful and comforting truth. You see, we belong to him, and he's not going to let us go. I love how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, God has purchased us at a great price to himself. So as followers or as disciples of Jesus, our posture is to be that of a servant before God, our master. Now, that's easy to say, but what does it mean practically? Because our hearts can do all kinds of manipulations with this if we have a nebulous understanding of what it is to take the posture of a servant. And we can end up maneuvering it such that we're back in the position of a master. And so what is Jesus teaching us here specifically about the posture of servanthood? And I wanna offer up four things that I think that we learn 
about servanthood here from this teaching. And the first is this. The first thing we learn is that a servant of God, as a servant of God, we are, command, we are to do whatever is commanded. We are to do whatever is commanded. This is a basic tenet of the master-servant relationship, that the, the servant doesn't get to pick and choose what they do. Okay? We see in the parable that the servant had multiple responsibilities that needed to be taken care of. There's the, there, there's the fields, there's the livestock, there's the preparing the meal, there's the serving the meal. And, and all of this was ass assigned by the master. This wasn't chosen by the servant. Don't miss this. This is an important point. And was he good at all of that? Like, we don't know. And it doesn't matter because that's what he was commanded to do. And see, here's where we can go, we can go wrong. See, we can fall into this trap of thinking, I I'm going to serve, but I'm only going to serve in my area of gifting. Like, what if, the, what if the servant was like, I'm really good at, at preparing meals, but I, I'm, not, I'm not good with the livestock. So, like, that's not even fathomable. Sometimes we can decide that we're just going to skip serving when it just seems inconvenient. If the master, if the servant comes in and is like, I'm dead tired, like, you're going to have to make your own meal because I'm done for the day. That's not even real, realistic. Maybe sometimes we don't serve because it's just not something we're passionate about. Or maybe it's something we're uncomfortable with. And see, when we do this, we've moved ourselves out of the position of servant and we've moved ourselves into the position of master. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Corey came up here and he shared with us uh, a great opportunity for us, a unique opportunity for us as a church to, to minister to Afghan refugees who are being temporarily housed at Camp Etterbury. And so many of you responded. It's amazing. And so that's been a really neat thing. Well, there's a woman in our congregation that ultimately decided to sign up and serve who shared with me some of the struggles that she had when that opportunity presented itself. In fact, she said when she first heard about it, she said it was impossible to refrain from anger. And you see, she has a very personal connection. Her husband serves in the army and actually served in Afghanistan. And so she was struggling with the way we pulled out of Afghanistan. And she's struggling with, why are we bringing these people from another country when we have so many people in our own country that need help? So she was just, the emotions were just there. But God would not let go of her. He kept pressing in on her, and she signed up, and she went. And she said this, what ultimately led me to serve was the desire to be obedient to the nudging of the Holy Spirit, the gentleness of my husband and his response and readiness to serve, the conviction of Pastor Corey's prayer meeting and Corey's response to my concerns. I didn't really want to do what I was clearly being called to do, but she did it and she went. And then in reflecting on the experience, she had this to say. Now you might expect it's going to be like, oh, and then my whole world was changed. It was amazing and it was like the best thing I've ever done. That's not the story. And that's not always the story, right? But here, listen to what she said. All in all, I knew I wanted to be obedient to what God was telling me to do, even though I wasn't all in yet. I just needed to trust and obey. He doesn't leave me alone in what he's calling me to do. And then I love how she finished it. It's not always about the work. Sometimes it's about me. It's great. As a servant of God, we're to do whatever is commanded. 
So the second thing that we learn is that as a servant of God, we are to focus on our duties instead of focusing on ourselves. So in the parable, the servant had to focus on the duties he'd been given before he can take care of his own needs. And so it would be appropriate for us to say, okay, if we're servants of God and we're to focus on our duties, what are our duties? What are we commanded to do? And, and we don't want to overcomplicate this. Jesus made it very clear for us, and he said this, uh, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So everything can be summed up in those two commandments. Love God, love others. Implication is our orientation and our focus needs to be on loving and serving God and others. And that flies directly counter to this cultural moment that we're in where the focus is on self. And it's not that we don't care about ourselves, it's that our orientation is toward God and others first, and then God will provide for our needs. A lot of you know, and I've shared before, that for about 10 years I was involved in prison ministry. And one of the things that I did was every Thursday afternoon I would leave work, I would uh, drive to a men's prison, I would go in and I would mentor men there. And there were many a times I'd pull in that parking lot to go into that and I'm thinking to myself, I have no time for this today. I got a million things going on at work. Uh, I can't take my cell phone in, so I gotta leave that, I gotta go off the grid. What if somebody texts me? What if something comes up? I don't have time, I don't wanna do this. But I had to, because I was committed, and there was no way to cancel out because I couldn't communicate with the guys inside the prison. So I toss my cell phone in the glove box and go stomping in through security with anything but a servant's heart. And then an hour later, as I'm walking out and going to my car, an amazing thing had happened. I think, what, what was I? What was I? There was something on my mind. What was, what was I worried about? What was, like, um, man, well, it just doesn't seem like that important now. I think I'll just drive home and go have dinner with my family. You see, in obediently serving, God had mercifully forced me to get my eyes off myself and get my eyes on somebody else. And that was a good thing. And in so doing, God was providing for me. So as a servant of God, we're to focus on our duties instead of focusing on ourselves. God will care well for us. The third thing we learn is that as a servant of God, we're to serve because this is our duty. We're to serve because it's our duty. In other words, we don't serve for the commendation or the recognition or the special reward. In verse 10, it says, um, we are to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We observe in the parable that the servant did quite a bit. And I think it seems like did everything that was expected of him, but it didn't even warrant a thank you. And that's hard. I mean, that is hard for us, especially in the culture that we live in today, especially with the air that we breathe today. We want to be recognized we want to be affirmed. We want the trophy. But Jesus knows that when we start serving because of the recognition or because of the affirmation or because of the trophy, that we're going to eventually just put ourselves back in the place of the master. Because we'll be deciding what we do, what we don't do. 
even if we don't think we're doing it, that's what we're doing. The truth is the recognition, the praise, the rewards, they're fleeting and they're never gonna satisfy our soul. But when we take the posture of a servant before God and get our eyes on serving him and serving others, our service may never get public acclaim, but the impact and the implications can be eternal. So as a servant of God, we're to serve because this is our duty. And then finally, as a servant of God, our worth is determined by our relationship with the master. Our worth is determined by our relationship to the master. Verse 10, Jesus says we're to say, we are unworthy servants. And I want to pause on that word unworthy for a minute because I know some of you can hear that and say, that just reinforces for me the unworthiness I feel before God. That might even stir up in you feelings of guilt and shame because of past sin or current sin. But that is not the implication here. In the context of this teaching, the unworthiness is meant to convey that the servant has done nothing deserving of special recognition. They've only done what was commanded of them. Therefore, they are unworthy of any special thanks or any special thank you. The the servant has clearly proved their worth. This is not an indictment on the worth of that individual. The servant has proven his worth to that master through his service. So we don't want to misinterpret that. The lesson is that our worth is defined by our relationship to God, our master, and not by our accomplishments and not by any gifts or talents that we've been given. Because if we try to find our worth in our gifts or our talents or our accomplishments, we're going to get crushed. Like if our worth is tied up in how many followers we have on social media, or if our worth is tied up in how many promotions we get at work, or how many thank yous for something we did, we're going to get crushed by that because that stuff is fleeting and it doesn't last. It has no eternal value. And when it doesn't come, it's just going to be devastating for us. Most of you know for the last two years, I've spent a lot of my time focused on the funding and the construction of this facility. And I praise the Lord for the provisions of the facility. In fact, I believe this is one of the reasons the Lord called me out of corporate world to be here because of some of my experience that allowed me to help oversee this thing. But I wanna share with you the ugly truth I've been faced with. See, my heart wants to make this building a monument to my skills and abilities. I want this to be a trophy, a look at what Mark has accomplished instead of look at what God has accomplished. But the reality is, in less than two years, nobody's gonna remember I had anything to do with this. And some of you who are new here have no idea anyway. And so, the lesson here, the point is that if my worth and my value is tied up in this building, then I'm gonna be crushed as soon as my role is forgotten or as soon as somebody complains about this building. The reality is, we have inherent value because God created us Our master created us and he made us in our image, in his image. We are worthy because we are image bearers of God. And we don't need trophies. We don't need special recognition because when we belong to God, when he is our master, he is our prize. He's the reward. And he's a good master. He is faithful. 
He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. That is our master. And when we're in his presence and being his servant, that's the greatest prize. That's where we'll find our greatest joy. That's what led David to say this. David wrote, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So what is your relationship with the master, with God? If that's where our worth is, how is your relationship with him? Because all of us either were or are separated from God because of our sin. All of us were born with a heart that wants to do what we wanna do and not what he wants us to do. In our flesh, we push against this idea of being a servant. We hate the idea of God as our master. But the Bible is clear about something, and that is, apart from God, because of our sin, we will die, and we will be eternally separated from him in hell. But God loved us, and he decided to intervene, so he sent Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest example that we have of a servant. I, I wanna just put this on the screen. Paul says this in Philippians 2, this is so important. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus the servant went to a cross and, and was crucified specifically to pay the death penalty that you and I deserve to be, to be paid. He paid it on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He died so that we could live. And the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not all who ha have cleaned their life up and got themselves together. It's not all who go to church or all who have done all these good deeds. It's all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And have you done that? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you called out the Lord and said, Lord, I need you? Because it's not working otherwise. I've sinned, I need forgiven, I need you. Call on the name of the Lord because he stands ready to forgive. He's not waiting for you to get your life cleaned up. He wants you right now as you are. He promises that he'll do that. See, Jesus died for you as a servant so that you could be reconciled in a relationship with God, and that is the best news in the world. So let me ask you then, as we begin 2022, is your relationship with God a master-servant relationship where God is the master and you are the servant? Or, on a more practical basis, are you behaving as though God is your servant, somebody to call on when you're in trouble or you need something? And as you consider that question, as we find ourselves living in this cultural moment of the exaltation of self, I can think of no better way for us to start the year than this teaching from Jesus that encourages us that as we, as disciples of Christ, we're to take the posture of a servant before God. See, God, our heavenly Father, he calls us to take a posture of a servant before him, and there's no greater honor than to serve him. 
So let's let 2022 be the beginning of a life that is patternly shaped by the posture of an obedient servant to our perfect master. So church, stand with me. I wanna pray for us. And then we're gonna sing together today as we close out our worship time. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are faithful, you are gracious, and you are merciful. And Lord, our hearts wanna push against any idea, any thought of being a servant. Like we wanna be in charge, Father. Break us of that, Lord, because you are a good master and the best place we can be is just serving you. Father, as we go into 2022, Lord, Father, enable us, not through our willpower, but through the Holy Spirit, to posture ourselves as a servant before you, that we would love you well, that we would love others well, that we would serve others well, Lord, all for your glory. Father, we need you. We need you to do this for us, Lord. Please do it. We wanna do it for your glory and for your namesake. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus.